Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the What It Do Toronto Raptors podcast. My name is Drew Horton and let's jump into it. The Raptors season is essentially over. They're sitting in 12th place with a 27 and 40 record. And they now have no chance to catch the Wizards or the Pacers for a spot in the plan. And no way that they fall below the Magic at 13. At this point, the rest of the games are essentially for player development and team chemistry. Uh, There's no real opportunity to tank anymore. So it's now just about playing out, getting people some reps, and considering off-season moves, as well as just trying to get the guys in a good headspace going forward for next year. So since my last episode, there have been a few more Raptors career highs, and I also realized I missed one or two of them counting in my last list. So now I'm just going to go through and give you all 10 Raptors that have reached a career high in points this season. No other team in the league even comes close. So first off, we have Kem Birch, who got 20 points against the Nuggets in April. Chris Boucher got 38 against the Bulls in April as well. Malachi Flynn also in April had 20 points against the Cavs. Freddie Gillespie had 11 points against the Lakers in May. Jalen Harris, 11 against the Clippers in May. Gary Trent Jr., 44 points against the Cavs in April. Fred Van Vliet with his miracle 54-point game against the Magic in February. And Utah and Paul Watson Jr., both in the same game in April, set their career highs at 21 and 30 points respectively. And then Norman Powell, before being traded, had 43 points at the Pistons in March. Just incredible that 10 different players have gotten career highs. No other team in the league even comes close. Now, while this is a very cool stat to have, it is a double-edged sword. On one hand, you have the knowledge that you have a bunch of different guys that can step up and get points in your lineup, but alternatively, it really does show that the Raptors have been plagued by COVID absences and injuries this year so that many guys have had to step up and I'd go with a little more emphasis on the latter of the two and I think that's why we see so many people having career highs but we also see the Raptors having a very disappointing season. Now that being said I think there is some reason to be optimistic next year. Our lineup is going to be pretty good if we've got all of our guys healthy and we'll be playing in front of the home crowd next year. Won't have to be in Tampa Bay getting booed, you know, at every single game that they play. And I think in my Raptors prediction at the beginning of the year, I really underestimated the fact that the Raptors wouldn't be playing any home games. They have one of the best home court advantages in the NBA. And I've come to realize that a lot of players really need to feed off of that home crowd energy from time to time and without it it's just an uphill battle every step of the way you never get that true rest and reprieve from being on the road and so the season starts to weigh on you and it looks like that's what's happened for the Raptors. So in addition to playing at home next year another reason to be optimistic is I think we've got a really solid 
top six, seven, eight rotation. And then any other moves that Masai makes in the offseason will only help us further. Now, I am under the assumption that Kyle Lowry will not be coming back. I think a team will pay him handsomely to add to their contending roster. So keep that in mind. I didn't just forget about him while making this list. I think the starting lineup next year will be Fred Van Vliet, Gary Trent Jr., OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, and Chris Boucher. In my mind, the three guys that have earned real rotation minutes next year, Malachi Flynn, Utah Watanabe, and Kem Birch. If all those guys are playing well and healthy, obviously, I think that's a pretty good eight-man lineup. It's definitely a playoff team in the East. Now the end of bench guys, I think will be Paul Watson, Freddie Gillespie, Jalen Harris, and Rodney Hood. There's some potential in those guys, but they haven't been good enough to warrant extended minutes next year. Now there are also some free agents available, but I'll go into exactly who the Raptors are probably going to try and target in a later podcast, but it's a fairly deep free agent class. There's a certain two-way wing from the LA Clippers that could opt out of his contract. Don't think he will, but I think that roster next year, currently as is, is similar to the roster the year before the Raptors made the championship run, where their one superstar trade or superstar free agent signing or even just high star signing from being a real contender. Now, speaking of contenders, I'm going to shift my focus to the LA Lakers. And what the heck is going on with them? Jesus. They just lost to Portland yesterday, and now they're one game behind with five games left, and they're sitting in seventh. So the Lakers, a huge championship favorite, or at least one of the teams you'd expect to be in the Western Conference Finals, might have to play in the play-in. Now, LeBron has come out and said that whoever came up with the idea for the play-in should be fired from the NBA, but I have a feeling that he didn't really care about the plan when he was sitting in the top four, and now he suddenly has an opinion on it when it affects him. I guess a king doesn't really care all that much about his subjects until he has to live like them. Ain't that right, King James? Now I think with their full lineup, the Lakers crush any of those play-in teams, which right now are currently the Warriors, Grizzlies, and Spurs, but it would bring me immense joy to see them knocked out before even making the playoffs. Not because I really hate the Lakers or anything like that. I would just love to see either John Morant or DeMar DeRozan back in the playoffs. But in all seriousness, the Lakers are in trouble and they might genuinely have to play in the play-in. Like I said, they're one game back with five games left and they're two and eight in their last 10. LeBron's still out for a couple of games, so it may come down to the wire for them. Another team that has me very interested in the play-ins are the Washington Wizards. They've just been on a tear. They're seven and three in their last 10, and they've made it up to ninth place. They're now 32 and 36. They just overtook the Pacers for sole possession of ninth place, and they could even catch the Hornets the way they're playing. That would help them a lot in the play-in, give them an extra game cushion by being that eighth seed. And honestly, out of those sort of bottom teams in the East, they look the best. I mean, with Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook in the backcourt, if Westbrook is playing like his best self, that is one of the best backcourts in the East. Maybe the best. 
Now on paper, I don't think the Wizards should beat the Celtics and take their spot, but I definitely believe that they're better right now than the Hornets and the Pacers. I think they have the potential to make a first round series more exciting than it has any reason to beat. I mean, with their pure offensive firepower, I think they could take a game or two off of the 76ers or the Bucks. There's no way they win that series. I mean, Bradley Beal can drop 40 plus on any given night, so why not take a game off them? What surprises me about the Eastern Conference play-in is that Boston's in it. The Celtics, I think, have more talent, obviously, but they're just dysfunctional at the moment. I think a lot of emphasis has to be placed on Brad Stevens for not being able to get his team to gel and the offense and defense just both aren't working at the moment. They just lost to the Bulls by 25. I mean, with Kyrie gone, there's no easy scapegoat. And I think you've got to start looking at Brad Stevens to be able to manage his players' talent better because this same team took LeBron to seven games in the Eastern Conference Finals a few years ago, and they've only gotten better in terms of talent and players but now they're in seventh place in the Easter Conference play-in behind the Knicks, Hawks, and Heat. Now, I can't sit here and tell you exactly what's wrong with the Celtics, but they've got to do something. They've got too much talent to be a seventh place team in the East. Now, as bad as the Celtics have looked, oh my gosh, the Indiana Pacers have been many times worse. Apparently Nate Bjorkren's on the hot seat, they've got players yelling at coaches in the middle of games, and lots of rumors about a toxic workplace environment, players asking for trades. Now some of that has been at least somewhat disproven, TJ Warren has come out and ridiculed whoever had wrote the initial report of him asking for a trade just because Nate Bjorkren was coming over to the Pacers, but there is lots of drama going on there and it's spilling out into the public eye. You can't hide everything when it's clear that something is that wrong with the Pacers team. I don't want to go into it with too much more detail because there's not a lot of information or at least not a lot of reliable information coming out right now and it will be interesting to see how the story develops and what new things come out. So I'll just leave it at that and you can see with your own eyes just how bad and dysfunctional the Pacers look. Now enough about dysfunction, locker room drama, let's go into something a little more fun. It's time for the first ever edition of a What It Do Top 10 list, where the stats are made up and the rankings don't matter. At number one, we have Stephen Curry. Steph is really, without a doubt, the best shooter of all time. He just takes so many with unbelievable accuracy from all over the court with the most minimal amount of space. Seeing what he's done with the Warrior team this year just proves that he is the best shooter of all time. At number two, I'm going to put Steph's backcourt partner, Clay Thompson. When he is hot, there is nobody better at shooting a basketball on planet Earth than Clay Thompson. In 2017, he scored 60 points and he held the ball the entire game for a total of 90 seconds. Catch ball, shoot ball. That's all Clay's offensive game needs to be for him to be effective. I couldn't put him number one because 
of his consistency. I'm not going to say issues because it's never really an issue. He's always a solid three-point shooter, but Steph's consistency of hitting such a high clip needs to put him at number one, as well as the fact that he takes many of his three-pointers off the dribble, whereas Clay does not. Now for number three, I'm going to go back in time in a little bit and put Reggie Miller. I mean, this guy could shoot. I would have loved to see him play in today's game where he got the green light to take between 10 and 15 threes because before Steph Curry, he was probably the best shooter of all time. At number four, I'm going to put Ray Allen. His whole career was based on him shooting threes, at least after the first sort of four or five years. He could really put it on the floor back in his heyday, but then he settled into a three-point shooting defensive role, and he became probably the game's best role player. And man, could he shoot. At number five, I think it's pretty obvious who this guy has to be. Just one of the best playoff players that we've ever seen. I'm of course talking about post-child Fred Van Vliet. He seemed like he was shooting about 1,000% on three-pointers after the birth of his son, Fred Van Vliet Jr., and he single-handedly carried the Raptors to a championship title. Yes, that, that is a joke. I promise. That being said, he absolutely torched the Bucks and then the Warriors in the playoffs, and he had the best fourth quarter of the Raptors in the Game 6 closeout, where he had more points than Kawhi, Pascal, or Lowry to close it out. Number six, I'm going to have to go with Steve Nash. He was a great shooter by all means, and he was a little too unselfish during his play. A lot of people agree with that, Steve included. I would have loved to see him take more shots as opposed to always distributing. I think he was a good enough shooter that he could have scored an average 20 to 25 points a game if he really wanted to. Plus, I like him, and this is my list. Now, number seven, I almost debated putting him at number one, but I had to take a step back and drop him down the list because he didn't really shoot threes, but he was so accurate, I still have to give him a spot in this top 10 list. I'm of course referring to DeMar DeRozan when he has one foot on the three-point line. In his heyday with the Raptors, it seemed like DeMar DeRozan took about one three-pointer per month, and it seemed like none of them were going in. But if he had even one pinky toe on the three-point line to turn it into a long two, he was money. I swear he shot 90% from those. If he only took those shots, I think he might have shot 75% for his career. Now we're moving on to number 8 with Steve Kerr. This man really could shoot the 3. He finished with a 45% 3-point percentage at the end of his career, and he took more than a few. He was a role player, but he got fairly consistent minutes, won some championships with Jordan's Bulls, and really, if the Splash Bros are the equivalent of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Steve Kerr has to be their master splinter because he was a knockdown three-point shooter in his own right. Steve Kerr shot better than 50% from three four times in his career. Most guys would love to do that even once. And as of this recording, he holds the number one spot of all-time three-point percentage with a minimum of 253 pointers attempted. Now at number nine, this may come with a little bit of controversy. 
but I'm putting Kyle Korver on this list because in terms of pure shooting ability, he has one of the best strokes ever. I just want to put some respect on his name. He shot 42.9% over his whole career from three-point range, and he has the second most three-point field goals of all time behind only Steph Curry. Now wrapping it up at number 10, we have everyone's favorite point guard, Kyle Lowry, but specifically after someone has poked the bear. There is only one rule when playing against the Raptors, and what is it, Matt? Don't poke the bear! See? Everybody knows that. And the last thing I want to talk about today is the upset that happened over at the DFDL. And of course, everyone knows that DFDL is the Drew's Fake Dad League, which I've made up just now. And let's take a look at the press conference that is underway with the captain of Team Dad, John Doe, the most famous person in all of DFDL history. Of course, everyone knows the name John Doe. Now we'll take you live to the press conference. Did you sum up the day? Yeah, honestly, just felt like we got behind early. After the milk spill and the marker on the wall, we just felt like we were playing catch up the rest of the day. Right before you went to the store, you called a timeout. Was there an attitude change after that? Yeah, it felt like we were losing our heads there for a minute, so we wanted to just calm things down and uh, get back to the basics. Did you ever find your keys? No. No, no idea where they are. You gave them a snack half hour before dinner. Was that planned? No. I lost track of time. Was Just wasn't thinking. And so... Three bites of dinner. That's on me. It didn't look like you had many answers to the double team. Is that a question? And the press conference ends there. John, understandably frustrated as he starts the season 0-1. It really was a massive upset today as the kids worked their way into a late snack due to John's mismanagement of the clock. This collapse meant the final tally at the dinner table was three bites eaten. It's a tough day for last year's MVP, John Doe, who has started the season off slow. It's an uncharacteristic performance from John, who is usually known for his prowess on the defensive end. He led the league last year in vegetables eaten and desserts taken away, so we expect him to be back on track after today's disappointing performance. And that concludes our coverage of the DFDL. I promise all of my jokes and bits won't be about dads going forward, it's just that video was too good to pass up. It's by Dumb Dad Pod. If you like that fake press conference, then you might like the other stuff that they've got on their Twitter. Hope you enjoyed it. If you got anything else you want me to poke fun at, I am more than happy to listen to suggestions. So if you have any, you can send them to whatitdoraptorspodcast at gmail.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. That'll do it for episode 10 of the What It Do Toronto Raptors podcast. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Drew Horton, signing off. Peace!